strange attraction, mass psychology, synchronicities, and occulted realities. Welcome to the Friday Farcast with Robert Phoenix. There's a reason why I'm on this channel today. And um, it has to do with the fact that I've been blocked from live streaming um, on the um, 15 minutes of flame channel. I'm sorry, the Friday forecast channel. And that has to do with two things. Number one, I was given a strike wrongly, by the way, uh, about using a, a, a vid- having a video of somebody who has since passed away and their husband has been basically going through every single video that this person has been associated with. If their name and likeness and image has been uh, associated with it. So I got a strike for that. And that was probably about a month ago. And then just this past week, I was given another strike for, disseminating false information about the election. And this is from 2021. Okay. 2021. And it had to do with my show on Prince and my, my, my theory about Prince as the sacrifice for what was to come in the twin cities with he, he who shall not be named, but, um, his last name rhymes with Boyd. Okay. So now I'm over here on this channel, which is what I was originally going to use this channel for, but I wanted to just make everything central. So this is a very important part that you need to be able to follow me on 15 minutes of flame. Let me repeat that 15 minutes of flame. That is my channel that I stream Tuesday through Thursday on off of my website. Because if this world here collapses, you can still follow me there. For how long? I don't know. But you need to make sure that that website is in your bookmarks, okay? 15 minutes of flame. That's ovflame.com. Go there and put it in your bookmark. And I am there Tuesday through Thursday at 9-11. If I have to, I'll be there on Friday. If I have to, I'll be there on Sunday night, okay? So we are in a time now where information is being throttled in a pretty significant way, okay? I got my posse behind me right here. I got my pussy posse behind me. And uh, we should be in good hands or good pause today. Uh, Danny's here. And we're going to bring her on in just a second. Uh, before I do that, I do want to give a shout out to my uh, good friend and sponsor of the show. That would be uh, Christopher Lynch and his website, uh, which is True Hem Science. Of course, I'm rocking the True Hem Science cap today. And by supporting Chris's products and purchasing some of the best CBD that is available to you, uh, what you do is you ultimately support our community. You support Chris, 
his ability to grow the business, his ability to spread the gospel of CBD and CBG as a uh, alternative to some of the things that you might take in order for your everyday ailments. And I'm trying to get to my other website and it's not allowing me to go there very quickly. We are in very interesting times, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, kitties and puppies. Um, wow. It is taking forever for my website to load. That is so strange. Let me try another browser. Let's get into, uh, let's get into Firefox. We are now, I think, uh, in the world of information warfare, and we have been for a while, but it seems to be picking up uh, dramatically here as we move into the midterms uh, and beyond. So let me see if I can grab this. This site can't be reached. Okay, so I'm going to do something. Give me one second, because it might be set to certain protocols that I have right now. Let me just go here and see if I can take care of that. Uh, let's see, what do we have here? Uh, bu -bu -bu -bu. Mm -mm -mm. Where are we? Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, right here. All right. Due to the fact that I have my um, IP blocker on, which is exactly what it was. Thank you, IP blocker, from blocking me from my own website. <laughs> Ain't life a gas. All right, so let me just bring you into the world of True Hemp Science and um, talk about the efficacy of Christopher's products. I'm looking forward to my gummies arriving this weekend. As you all know, I had a hell of a time sleeping this week. I slept 12 hours last night. So if you're interested in finding out more about Chris's product, he'll be up in Dallas this weekend. I don't know where he's going to be. Chris, if you're listening. Uh, you want to text me where you're going to be and the public is available to meet you, please do so. Uh, but all I do is get rave reviews from people that use this product, whether it's the gummies, the moon dust, the pet sounds for your pet. And by supporting Chris, you support our community. You support a business that's growing. You support this business, my stream, because again, I have a partnership relationship with Chris, just like he has a partnership relationship with People like Crow Triple Seven. He's got a number of affiliate programs. And if you're interested in setting up one of your own, contact Chris. I'm sure he'd be willing to help you and set up your own uh, nodal point to access his product. Anyway, if you're interested, go to truehempscience.com backslash ref backslash 23. That's truehempscience.com backslash ref backslash 23. And if you spend $100, you will get free product. And if you spend $150 or more, you'll get free shipping. Just type in 15MINS when you check out, and Chris knows where you're coming from and uh, what's going to go in your goodie bag. He's also very accessible to anybody who has questions about his products 
the CBD, he's very, very knowledgeable and very generous with his time. If you don't get him, you get Marsha and she's got, she's got the playbook. So she knows exactly, you know, what's on the table and what to talk about. So does, so even if he's not there, you'll find someone knowledgeable. All right, let's, uh, let's bring her in. And it's very interesting because uh, Danny and I have been playing uh, tag here a little bit um, over the uh, course of the last month and a half or so to try to get her on my show. And for whatever reason, uh, Danny has been busy or we haven't been able to connect. But on this day, this day of days, we are here. So let me put my earbuds in and um, let's talk. Oh, look at that. She's giving herself a little spritz. I love it. I love it. What's in your spritz, Danny? Rose water. Rose water. All right. A little sacramental spritz. Exactly. I love all the cats. They're my posse. They're my pussy posse. Yes. Yay for the pussy posse. That's right. I felt like today we need a little extra power. Wow. That was a real wake up call to find out that I've been blocked from live streaming on YouTube. What? Why? Yeah. Well, I, I, I told the story to be in the show. Um, so, you know, Tracy, right? Tracy. No. Uh, she died about three years, two and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, anyway, she, her husband has gone on this rampage and anybody who's used her likeness or image talking about her in an interview, he's gone to every single uh, social media post, a uh, social media outlet, and uh, basically said that he owns her likeness and image. And as a result of that, I violated that. Um, so I should actually fight that because yeah. because apparently. Um, apparently he has, he has no, he, he has no case really. So that went on my little record there on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And then somebody, well, it's not even a somebody, I don't know who it is, but YouTube decided that they were going to give me a strike for a show that I did in 2021, where I did talk about the election. And apparently I didn't talk about the election in the way they want me to talk about the election. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, th that show was over, over well over a year ago. Right. And buried. And once I do a show, unless it's going to be, you know, really memorable, like our show will be, I tend to forget them. Right. It's just like I move on. But when that happened, that was my second strike. So now I'm on strike two. And if I, uh, get another strike in that channel, that channel's done. Right. So that's why I urge people to be in a show to follow me on my, on my website, mm -hmm. which is going to be a lot harder to uh, knock me off of. So yeah. I was act, I was actually very surprised when I went in and said, this user is not allowed to live stream. And so I have a backup channel through a different account and I'm here and you're here and everybody else is here. So there we go. This is the world that we're living in now. Cuckoo. I'll do my best to behave so as not to get you a third strike. I, I hope you, <laughs> I hope you, I hope you misbehave. <laughs> it's kind of my default setting. <laughs> I, I am not somebody that's going to throttle your free speech. Okay. Thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah. And this is really where I'm at because 
we we may not always agree on on things, but it should it shouldn't play any role in how we disseminate information at all. And, yes. in, and in fact, my my uh, my soapbox has always been it all needs to be on the table. Everything. Everything needs to be on the table, because if we're going to move forward as a species, whatever the species is, right, we need to have really open conversations about whatever it is we do, have done, will do, thought to have done about each other, because we're not we're not going to move forward unless that happens. We'll, we'll be stuck in a time be stuck in a time loop. Right. And we'll, I mean, it's we'll, the foundation of a democratic republic or a constitutional republic. We can't have that without free expression and debate and dialogue. It's insane to me that so many people don't seem to have forgotten that. I just find that so odd. Like, OK, you love injections. You love your enslavement. You love your fake news. You love your drunk leaders. But what happened to free speech? Well, what happened to free speech and what happened to freedom? Right. What happened to free speech? What happened to freedom? And what happened to truth? I have my ideas about that, but these were these were absolutely paramount themes. And if you go back to the 1960s, uh, let's let's say 67, 68, which is probably the most volatile year um, of the, in some ways, of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Right. What did you have? Well, you had a bunch of raging, screaming, loony lefties who are talking about the very same things we're talking about now. Right. Right. That's what their platform was. Right. And, and, and even if you looked at the so-called right and the so-called silent majority, even though they're not as vocal as they are now, that was their platform too, right? They wanted to be able to say what they wanted to say or, or do what they wanted to do and be left alone. So even though those two groups were disparate and disconnected, they shared a commonly held value. Mm-hmm. At that, and then all that's out the window now it's all it's all out the window and you have people that are absolutely begging for their slavery begging for it yeah they love it they love their enslavement and their genocide and their transhumanist nonsense right all right we got a lot to talk about before we do let's find out a little more about danny Katz. <laughs> um now of course i know you through our good friend emily moyer Yes. And, and then I've been on your show a couple of times. They had great conversations with, uh, and part and your your uh, sweet spot is language and words, yes. And and what we do with them, how they affect us, how they impact us, and we'll we'll get into some of that today. But let's find out a little bit more about you. Um, let's talk a little bit about your background, your upbringing, where you came from, and some of the personal cultural events that shaped Danny Katz as she sits before us today. Okay. Um, that's pretty broad as, as an Aquarian son, if I take us off into too many off topic tributaries, I'm, feel I'm, free- a ta- I'm, yeah, I'm good. I'm, people know, people know that I'm good with tangents. So let's just, let's get into it. Okay. Um, I was born in Los Angeles in Hollywood, which is now where I was born is now the Scientology center. Um, I got heavily into gymnastics at age four or five, um, and with a very clear goal of being in the Olympics. So I was training hardcore for that from about four to age 15. Um, I injured my wrist. I had a bunch of operations. They couldn't really fix it. 
Um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I went to UC Santa Barbara. Um, yep. then I- go, go Gauchos. Go Gauchos. Yes. I was little known fact. I was a Gaucho cheerleader. Really? I know. Very <laughs> out of character. But I was after gymnastics, I was hardcore dancing and I was in a dance company in L.A. And when I went to Santa Barbara, there weren't any contemporary dance classes. So my mom suggested that I join the cheerleading squad. And I was like, are you insane? Have you met me? <laughs> And she's like, no, I think it's different. I think there's more dancing. So I would like pout on the sidelines when it was time to like shake my pom-poms and my tits. But I loved going like out at halftime to do the dances and the competitions. Right, right. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah. So UC Santa Barbara, pretty good basketball teams. When did you go to school there? So I was there 89 to 93. So we were champions. We went to the NCAA tournament we were the last team to beat UNLV when they were like big hot shit so it was pretty exciting to be a cheerleader there then and to learn about like the group mind that comes along with athletics Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and see how it overtook like the whole school it was pretty interesting like kind of social anthropological study right yep so I'm looking at some notable UC Santa Barbara alumni and, uh, oh boy, you're in some good company here. <laughs> Am I? Let me, oh yeah. Let me, let me see how many of these people you're familiar with. Well, first of all, there's Michael Douglas. Did you know that he was a, I had no idea, but is he notable? Like do actors count? They play make-believe. Well, in their world, he is, uh, I'll show you the, uh, the, uh, let me see if I can do the screen share here. Um, hold on. Uh, what do we go? Let's go back. Um, yeah, so he is actually like number one. He's he's like at the top of the hip parade. Okay. So here's here's some of your your alumni. You got Michael Douglas, Cool Jack Johnson, the guy who kind of sings the same song over and over again, but I, he's enjoyable. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, Scott talking. Frank, who's an uh, a screenwriter, Harvey Levin, the founder of TMZ. Oh, wow. Alumni. There's a DJ Steve Aoki. Oh, I I did not know that. A gaucho. Gwyneth Paltrow's a gaucho. Did you know that? Well, I know she was there for like a quarter. Okay. They're they're claiming her as one of their own. Andrew Schultz. That's exciting. I can get behind him. Andrew Schultz. Andrew Schultz did not have kind words to say about Kanye West, but we'll get into that later. Okay. Jim Rome, the, uh, the sportscaster. Do that. Uh, let's see. We got uh, Shane Bieber, a uh, baseball player, Dave Asprey, Mr. Oh, Mr. he's such a weird, like transhumanist guy. Now he's, he's morphing in that direction. Yeah. All his biohacking stuff. Like you can feel that it's not integrated in any sort of emotional way. Right. It's like, Oh, I'm having parts of my brain worked on to optimize me into superhuman. It's, it's weird. That's a really good point. Um, Oh, and how could you not be proud of Sean Hannity? I had no idea. I did know there was some um, talk show host back in the day. It was like kind of real low, low brow. Um, I'm blanking on his name, like a Jerry Springer type. Right. Um, Okay. That's great. And and (laughs) an illustrious 
cast. Oh, illustrious, very Ivy League of the UC system. <laughs> uh, did, did, so did you graduate from, from uh, UC Santa Barbara? I graduated from UCSB and then I went straight to USC for grad school where I got my master's in journalism. Interesting. Um, and what did you do with all that knowledge? <laughs> Get myself into a lot of trouble. Um, I mean, I, in grad school, I was, I was, kind of cherry picked out for having a good nose for news. Like I had the journalistic instincts, but SC, no surprise, they gave all of their scholarships and grants and support to the richest kids because their parents were the ones who would then give donations to the school. So it was weird. I was like kind of lauded, but also marginalized at the same time. Um, I was, so while I was at USC, I was interning for CNN, for NBC News, and for MTV News. Um, But my first job was in public relations. So I was um, a publicist for like fancy television shows. And that's when I realized how completely fake that whole world is and how like the shows that were given critical acclaim or put on magazines had nothing to do with the quality. It was just like how well the publicist could schmooze the journalists. Like I just realized, oh, it's all super fake. Right. Um, so I got super grossed out by that. And then I got into psychedelics. I made it through all of my time at UC Santa Barbara without ever like smoking a joint or trying anything. So I was really late to that. So I got into psychedelics afterwards and I was like oh fuck all of this this is lame so I produced a documentary called 20 dates and then I hightailed it to Southeast Asia and then I just traveled for the next bunch of years I backpacked through Southeast Asia and Central America and India and did like that whole like hippie kind of Saturn return go 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 find yourself it was a go find yourself moment totally yeah um then I came back and after 9-11 like as soon as 9-11 happened I was like yeah I'm not buying it And at that time, I was producing the news for Pacifica's KPFK radio station. Right, right, which is a sister KPFA in Berkeley and then connected to whatever they call themselves in Washington. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's where I really learned like how fake everything was, because it was that time that um, Bush Jr. named the axis of evil and he he put North Korea in it. And I I asked my news director, I was like, well, I don't understand. And he's like, here's the phone, call North Korea, figure it out. And so that was when I just started really cluing into like project for a new American century and like all of the like layers of collusion that were going on. I was ultimately fired from KPFK when they fired our news director, they brought in a guy who I'm pretty sure was a CIA plant. And I pitched him a 60 second good news segment once a week. And he said, you're fired. You clearly have no idea what we're trying to do here. Wow. This, this, this is a little before that, but I remember I was, um, I'm good friends with uh, Stephen Kent who plays the didgeridoo and he had a show on uh, KPFA called music of the world. Mm -hmm. And he would play music from all, from all over the world. And, uh, and at some point, this is during the Clinton era. You got to keep this in mind. This is during the Clinton era. And the Clinton era basically made a sea change in terms of how news was going to be disseminated through that whole network. Mm-hmm. And even the like the, the old 60s lefties that, that we were talking about earlier, who were all about things like truth and freedom and things like that. Uh, Larry Bensky, who was the news director, 
uh, at KPFA. He got fired, right? So there were all these protests um, outside of KPFA where literally the Clintons were introducing an even deeper level of corporate media um, in, into Pacifica, which is connected to, uh, basically it's connected to NPR and everything that was set up through Johnson and the Great Society and the War on Poverty. A lot, not a lot of people know that, but that's when, that's when public radio, public television got there in this country, got their start. And of course, those entities are funded by these massive foundations, Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, right? So they're the ones that are going to control the flow of information and yep. what they say ultimately goes. Yep. Yeah. And, and I remember a fellow Aquarian, Alice Walker, showing up in at the in front of the station and giving. And so it was a really interesting time, right? It's like you have this Democratic president who's supposed to stand for all, you know, there were so many illusions about, about Clinton and Kennedy going back to the picture where Clinton and Kennedy are in the same picture. Right. right? And, and in a lot of ways that they were really grooming him on that image. Right. And, and, and yet, and yet the people that were on the front lines of truth and freedom of speech and all the things that were part of the sixties, which theoretically Clinton was a part of, they're out the door. They're like, see you, we're going to start to control the flow of information and we don't want you to talk about why North Korea was named as a member of the axis of evil. Right. Yeah. Right. Which was because Clinton welched on our treaty, but no, we can't, we can't talk about that. <laughs> right. Right. So you went through that. You're like, okay, I've seen fake news on like the, uh, the TV magazine news front, which is I think what you're referring to. Right. And, and they got awards because they had the better publicist. Uh, then you, then you go, then you go into sort of the Pacifica world and you realize, well, shit, this is supposed to be real. And what are we seeing now? We're seeing more fake news, more lies, more illusion. Right. What? The, the, so, so, so there, where do you go from there? Yeah. Well, and it was, you know, I had a very, I had strong emotional reactions being in both, um, in both arenas. Like I remember being as a publicist and getting like this shitty Aaron Spelling show on the cover of a magazine. And after I, I nailed it, I felt so guilty. I called the editor and I'm like, you can't actually put this show on the cover. It's terrible. And he's like, oh, I love you. Like now I'm going to do more for you. And it was just like, I was trying to make it better and I was making it worse. Um, and then after KPFK, I was just realizing like I was becoming like emotionally unhinged. I was angry all the time. I was depressed all the time. It was like my go-to social strategy to like steal everyone's binkies and tell everyone how everything they knew was a lie. And I just realized like, I don't like the person that this is making me. So I took a really big step away from hard news, realizing like, I don't think I have the constitution for this. And that's when I started writing for the LA Weekly. And I was I mean, they had pretty much pinpointed me as a conspiracy theorist um, from the get-go. And this was like, I think maybe 2002, 2003 is when I started writing for them. Um, but I was, I would mostly write about art or they call me their nutter butter writer. So anything like fringy, weird, Burning Man, entheogens, breath circles, raw food, like I was the go-to girl for that. So I wasn't covering hard news for... LA Weekly, but I was really good friends 
with my editor who was covering hard news. So when, you know, like Obama was up, I was feeding him all these links and, and like, you have to pay attention to this and, and you have to look at this. And they just, I was always marginalized as a nut job. And I realized like these people who have a big responsibility because the LA Weekly had a huge readership. You know, I wrote for the LA Times and other papers as well, but that's where it, it was like my go-to and I could pretty much write for the weekly about whatever I wanted, wherever I wanted. And I just realized how these journalists didn't do their research. Like they wouldn't, they were not willing to look at all the information. And so I learned like how much people's personal biases or their own contracted comfort zones shaped um, the public discourse and what we were allowed to know. And I found that really disturbing. Um, and I, and like the more that I tried, the more that I was just kind of put into like the you're crazy category. Right. You're marginalized. Uh, yeah, totally. So you, um, let me, let me ask you a question. Um, did you feel like you were on an Island at that time or were there people that understood what you were experiencing and could um, empathize with what you were going through? Um, it was a little bit of both. So back then we had a community in Topanga Canyon called the Rodeo Grounds. Um, and I was, I was part of that community. That community was a big part of my deprogramming. Ultimately, Monsanto came in with the state and like colluded to get the community out. But that was like, you know, old hippies, my friend James Mathers, who was part of Andy Warhol's crew. So I had community with them to know that I wasn't crazy and that they knew what I knew. There was also this guy, David Jacks. I don't know if you know who he was. Um, he had one of the first conspiracy theory websites. And the way the website was set up is you would go on and it was literally like the night sky with like thousands of tiny dots that were stars. And you didn't know what they were, but you just click a dot and it would be a wormhole of like, chemtrails or Tavistock or aliens or, you know, like whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So I also had, um, he also went by, he went by David Jacks. He had another name. Um, he ended up dying, but like, I had some friends in that capacity within my established journalism circles. No, I was like the lone nut job. Right. I mean, I could only imagine what that, what that would be like, because not only, do you threaten their personal worldview, which for a lot of people is um, kind of mind shattering and life shattering, but you're also threatening their pocketbook. And that's a big deal, right? They're going to remain mute on some of the most uh, important and, and uh, salient topics in order to get paid. Yep. And unfortunately, that's the way our world has been wired. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as the show goes on. So you you were you were uh, in Aries Rising and um, Aquarian Sun. That's what you were doing. You were yes. disrupt. You were you were disruptor. Yes, yes, totally disrupting. Um, so at that time, I was also writing a lot for LA Yoga and Whole Life Times, and I they brought me on to Reality Sandwich. Um, like toward the last days that Pinchbeck was there and they were kind of propping, it was like Charles Eisenstein and, and I were their golden children. And they're like, we really want to, you know, give you guys a platform. And around, it was 2012 that I wrote this article, but it came out January of 2013 
um, where I tackle gender reassignment surgery as seen through the lens of the 53rd gene key. And that was incorporating um, an integral perspective of life evolves to transcend and include every stage that came before it. So if we're chopping off our junk, then we're not transcending and including. And while I, you know, will fight to the death for my fellow brothers and sisters freedom to do whatever they want, is this really our kindest move? And wouldn't it just make more sense to expand our definitions instead of expecting a small group of people to jump on the pharmaceutical titty and mangle themselves in these specific ways to try to look in a way that they're never going to look? Yeah, that was a really uh, that was really controversial uh, take on on that part of the gene keys. Yeah. And I've had I've had this discussion with Emily before. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. And oh, cool. it. And it was, what's his name? Richard. What's his name? Richard, uh, Richard Rudd. And, and we both came to the conclusion that in many ways, Richard Rudd was indemnifying himself, right. By taking this position. Yeah. So yeah, he's like, it's okay. It's the next stage of evolution. Right. Let's all party. party." I talked to Richard behind the scenes about it and he was a fan of my perspective. And again, like, I'm never suggesting that my way is the right way. What I'm always, always, always trying to do is like, let's talk about it. Like, and if we can't talk about it, then we really need to talk about it and talk about it from all angles, you know, because I was having the experience. I was living in Santa Fe at the time. There were a lot of trans people here, which were new to me. And it was like, it's odd to see like someone wearing a sequin mini skirt and a push-up bra with an Adam's apple and giant hands. And like, can we talk about, that there's an adjustment here, you know, that, that, that looks weird. There's, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that or people need to be demonized, but if I can't say that it looks weird and I don't know how, how to feel about it and have a conversation, then how can we really integrate this as a human family? So that, that article got me in a shit ton of trouble. (laughs) Um, and, And this was my first experience of like being canceled and, and the like Twitter cancel police and all of that. So I got called into an emergency meeting. It happened to be on my birthday um, with the reality sandwich crew. And they're like, we need to talk about what's going on. And I said, what's going on? They're like, have you not been on Twitter? And there were just thousands of tweets like saying that, you know, Danny Katz is a transphobic hate monger. She needs to be canceled. She needs to be fired, blah, blah, blah. So they actually had my back. And I was really, um, I was pleased with the way that they handled it. Um, And it put me on thin ice with them. So very soon after that, and I'd had a similar relationship with LA Weekly where it was like I could write about whatever I want to write about whenever I want, which was, I didn't realize at the time what a great blessing that was. So early 2013, Black Lives Matter is starting to come more and more into the fold. And so I pitched a story. I said, well, let's talk about the languaging because I can guarantee you this is going to create a lot more racism just because of the languaging Black Lives Matter. And they were like, we can't have you creating any more trouble for us anymore. You're pretty much done here. Um, And they shut the door and they were like, no, there will be, there will be no critiques of black lives matter. And that was pretty much kind of the end of my writing career with reality sandwich. And then I just over, you know, the next few years, I just kept getting pushed out, pushed out, pushed out, pushed out. When I was in Santa Fe, I had a column for Santa Fe reporter. I'm now banned for life from them. So I've, I've been, you know, very, very clearly pushed out of established journalism, which has me, you know, had had me doing things on podcasts, podcasts with Emily, my podcast, 
Then when I co-wrote Plandemic 2 Indoctrination with Mickey Willis, who's been a friend of mine for years, that was like kind of the final nail in the coffin of like me having any sort of like non-alternative voice. Right. Can we talk about Daniel Pinchbeck for a moment? Sure. (laughs) So Daniel is a symbol of the exact same thing that I talked about about 15, 20 minutes ago in our conversation mm-hmm. where there, he was raised essentially by, by hippies, right? He was raised by hippie lefties and, uh, and, and he clearly was indoctrinated or embraced or osmotically received a lot of those values. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember getting a copy of uh, 2012 which I think is a really good book, by the way. Mm-hmm. And no matter what you think of Daniel Pinchbeck, I think the writing is excellent. Um, I also think you get to see a lot of his self-indulgence in that book towards the end of the book. Massively. Uh, and it's, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. Yeah, it's cringy. <laughs> yeah, but his quest to break his head open uh, and the way that he writes about it is actually quite good. Now, Daniel has become almost the antithesis of the thing that he started out to do. I know. Right? And this is what I'm talking about. Uh, he just became incredibly mainstream. Now, I don't know if it's because he has a daughter, uh, he's trying to protect her, or this is just the byproduct of a certain form of capitalism that has a lot of asterisks and hooks and caveats that are associated with it. But you know, I think I mean, he turned before the daughter came. Like I, I experiencing him as doing a complete 180 into like a mind controlled handler of mine before right. he read. Right. So do you think that he was really conscious of doing that? Or was it because sometimes you know, the, the Borg just reaches in and starts flipping switches on people and they don't even know that they're doing what they're doing. Do you think he was conscious of quote unquote handling you? I don't think so. Um, And again, I want to be clear. I'm guessing because though he and I have had many exchanges, we haven't talked about this one specifically. Uh, I first saw it after, because I loved breaking open the head and I, I devoured every word of that. I thought it was a beautiful book. I saw Daniel speak a number of times. We shared the same social circle. I would see him at parties. I was really into him. Quetzalcoatl, I was into it until the end when he has his big like breakthrough. And I was like, ooh, oh, uh, you know, it was like, put your dick in your pants, Daniel. Like, we don't need to see this. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's, it's like you've done everything up to this point in the book to disassemble your ego. And at the end of the book, your ego is fucking so big that all you have to do is convince yourself that this beauty who's like probably way above your pay grade is your soulmate. And yeah. that, and that's really like the end of that. That's the end of that book. And I'm like, man, you did not get it. No, it struck me as, and I've had this cause I've written a bunch of books that haven't ever been published where like, I don't know how to end them or I don't know what to do. And so my sense from just like a literary standpoint was like, he was backed into a corner and had no idea how to end his book. I'm making that up. Like those are the blanks I'm filling in, but yeah, yeah. it was a pretty weak ending. And then he just, when he kind of went cuckoo in terms of parroting the globalist narrative around climate hysteria, 
I just thought this doesn't line up with all of your psychedelic exploration and everything that you've claimed to know. Like, this is so incongruous. It's not making sense to me. And then I'd say it was probably like around when Trump was elected, he would start to come after me really hardcore. You're not talking about the right things. Why aren't you talking about this? Why are you talking about this? And I realized like that was kind of the through line between my handlers at the time was all these men in the like yoga new age community telling me what I was supposed to be talking about and what I wasn't allowed to be talking about. And he really lined up. And that's where Mickey and I, and Mickey and I, you know, our friendship goes way, 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 way back. But um, Daniel took to attacking me really publicly on social media and Mickey would, would have my back and come in. And then when Mickey was being attacked, like we were kind of the only ones who had each other's back when our, supposedly spiritual community started getting all bigoted and and hate mongering and weird um so no i don't i feel like daniel like when i when i watch his interview with rfk i feel like he's there's so much inner angst that, and my guess is that he's being mind controlled and doesn't know it and doesn't understand it and has a lot of like internal conflict is my guess have you ever seen the uh the video with him and Yodorovsky. No. Oh, you have to watch it. Okay. So Daniel Pinchback seeks out uh, Yodorovsky, who of course is the director of El Topo. Right. Uh, uh, is a very interesting character. And he makes this um, probably about a 45 minute video and it's him. They're greeting each other. They're walking. And at one point they're outside and Daniel is smoking a cigarette. And he and Yodorovsky says, "Why do you smoke? You know, why why are you doing that? Right? Yeah. And and so, throughout the interview, Daniel is looking for some kind of confirmation from a culture hero. Mm-hmm. And Yodorovsky does he does tarot, right? So he does he does a three card tarot. He only uses the major arcana. And Daniel's reading was shitty, like it was a shitty reading." Like there were cards in there that were not, um, how shall we say this, based on forward momentum, okay? Right. And Yodorovsky tolerates Daniel Pinchbeck in that video mm-hmm. it, because he's, it's like he's going to the Pope. He's going, he's looking for the papal blessing right. of, the, of the Pope of alternative culture and alternative media. Yeah. And he, and he doesn't get it. He does not. Conversely, and we're going to get into this, Conversely, Yodorovsky, now, in that video, you will see Pinchback and Yodorovsky together. That's what that video is about. But then Yodorovsky, he might be doing a TED Talk. I don't know what he's doing, some kind of talk. He talks about Kanye West coming to him for tarot reading. Mm -hmm. And And so the first thing he says about Kanye West is that he loves him very much. I like this guy. And Kanye West said, I will pay you $10,000 for a good idea. That's what he said to Yodorovsky. I'll pay you $10,000 for a good idea. Like I've heard this story. And then Yodorovsky says, I think I can get three good ideas. And so Kanye West says, sure, I'll pay you for all three. Right. And then eventually he does a tarot reading for Kanye West. And it's very different than the pinchback reading. Mm -hmm. And in the Kanye West reading, again, he's, He's retelling this in the pinchback video. You're seeing it in real time. Um, in, in the Kanye West story, 
the first card that he flips over is the world, mm -hmm. which is a pretty significant card, mm -hmm. right? He basically says like the world is yours. Right. Then the next card he flips over is the magician. Mm -hmm. And the magician has all these tools at his disposal. And then the final card that he flips over is the fool. And, and I think when you look at that three card reading for, for Kanye West, it encapsulates him, right? Because he's a world figure. He's moved in a number of different worlds. Uh, the magician could represent hip hop, music, fashion, all, all the different tools that he has at his disposal. Right. Mm -hmm. And that he's willing to take on the persona of the fool mm -hmm. and literally step off the cliff without, without looking or without some degree of consequence about what might happen. Right. Uh, um, rounding off the Daniel Pinchbeck piece. I do have one last piece to offer on that. Yeah. Pinchbeck, Robert Forte is a really good friend of mine. And he was invited to speak on a psychedelic panel with Daniel Pinchbeck under the strict instructions that he not mention 9-11. And uh, after their talk, there were questions from the audience and someone asked about 9-11 and Robert Forte was talking about it. And Daniel Pinchbeck interrupted and shut him down and said, we're not talking about that nonsense. Right. Okay. So when I was at Gaia, uh, they brought in some people that they thought would connect with a younger audience. And at that time, I think I was 53, although I looked, I looked younger. Um, and so it was me, it was Daniel Pinchback, and it was Mike Adams. Mm -hmm. and so they brought all three of us in at that time at Gaia. And Mike Adams was doing a show with another guy. It was like a buddy of his. And I think that, it, and by the way, I'm not here to slam Mike Adams but it lasted about three episodes and they shut him down because they just didn't have any really good chemistry. Um, they weren't really bringing up anything sa salient. They really, they really got behind Daniel Pinchback mm -hmm. and, and they threw a lot of money at him. They actually built a studio for him mm -hmm. in New York city. And his first guest was Russell Brand. So <laughs> they were loading the deck for Daniel Pinchbeck to be able to have a show on Gaia. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it didn't happen. Couldn't. Ha and it's not because Gaia wasn't willing to invest in him because they would send out a film crew production, everything. It's because Daniel couldn't handle a show. He couldn't carry a show. You know, he has, he has the charisma of this plastic bucket. I'm looking at across from me. I'm sorry. That's just, the, you know, he's a great writer, but just because you can write, it doesn't mean you can talk. And, that's that's that it's so that that was my connection in sort of in that world and mm -hmm. out of the three people that were brought in i was the only one that was left standing and i did 25 other shows until i started to talk about barack obama but that's that's another point well that's really interesting that you bring that up the lack of charisma because i was at burning man in 2005 and i was with some girlfriends at a pinchbeck talk in one of the tents and we were all in the front row and he's, and again, like, I don't mean any disrespect. Um, he had a great influence on my writing career in the early days. I think he's a very talented writer. I agree. Um, he's not a traditionally attractive man, right? right? And he isn't actually that charismatic. And it was interesting because after that talk, 
every girl that I know who was there, we were all in love with him. And it was like, what black magic is going on? Because there's nothing, he's not presenting as attractive. He's not charming or anything. So it had me thinking like, what's working through him? What, you know, like at that time, and I wasn't suspicious in the way that I am now, it just struck me as odd that we were all so drawn to him. Right. Yeah. So you all broke up with him simultaneously. Is that what happened? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I bet his wife was happy about that. Um, all his groupies just said, uh, we're, we're gone. We're out of here. Yeah. Not that you're not that you're a groupie. Um, okay. Well, I did have Charles Eisenstein on my show and we talked about the future of money and I really haven't followed him very much since then. How has he evolved? I don't know. I just interviewed him again this week about the JQ because I'm obsessed and I cannot get a clear read. Like I can't tell if it's just that our energy is dissonant. If I'm a little starstruck, if he's a little high strung, if he's, I see so many incongruities around him. I think his relationship with Aubrey Marcus is a bit suspect. He definitively I mean, both times that I've interviewed him, he will definitively deny the existence of any capital C conspiracy. And I'm like, how can you do that? Like, we don't, you've done all of the research, you know, across all the realms to, to, to know definitively. Like, I know people who this is their full-time job and no one has enough grasp on the material, you know? So I think there's, it's weird, his like consistent denial of conspiracies, um, the fact that he follows the script of shaming flat earthers, which the way that I see it, anyone in the mainstream who acknowledges any conspiracy are kind of required to then make fun of flat earthers. Right. I don't know because he says a lot of things that ring true and, and feel nice to hear someone say. My experience with him, and obviously not a very personal one because I don't know him at the level that you do. But my experience with him was that he had a very solid um, and, and, I, and I think noteworthy grasp of money and the economy, mm-hmm. which when you listen to him, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I felt as if I was also dealing with somebody who was deeply disinterested in what they were talking about. So right. it was a, it's a really weird thing, right? It's like, okay, you have all this knowledge. You put the, these things together, and I would say, you know, for the most part, it all makes a lot of sense. Right. And and yet, I, I feel like you're kind of looking at what you just bought at the grocery store and adding up the receipt. I mean, that's what it felt like to me. And I, so I didn't know if that was just me and I was just some guy that, you know, he was on a podcast with, but that was my experience of him. Yeah. Did you Did you mention that to him? No. I mean, I had him for an hour, and, and at that time, where was I in my kind of podcast um, sort of style? It was more about finding out more about his ideas and his concept with money. If, if we had had a two hour show, maybe I would have, maybe I would have talked to him more about the other guy I had on that show for the first hour was Michael Tellinger. Mm-hmm. And we talked about his whole Ubuntu thing. And I had Michael on a few other times. Um, <laughs> I'll never forget for whatever reason, I wound up doing part of that show with Michael in my bathroom. Um, And I don't think it had to do 
with me going to the bathroom. I think it had to do with me getting closer to the router or something. I don't know what it was, but that was, it was an interesting, but you know, it was good. I think it's still up there somewhere. Um, just to be super clear, um, I am not close to Charles Eisenstein and just, just, just to set the record straight, like we, we, our names were always used together at Reality Sandwich when the editors talked to me. So I thought it was odd when I had him on my show for the first time earlier this year. And when we signed on to Zoom, his first thing that he said to me was, is it Donnie? Is that how you say your name? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. He doesn't know who I am. Okay, like that's certainly possible. He also doesn't know how to say my name because like, it's not that hard. Like there are people named, women named Danny. There aren't women named Donnie. Like he didn't do any research on me. I'm like, okay, like, okay, that's all possible. I find it a bit of a stretch, but okay. And then I just interviewed him again this week. And the first thing he said when he, he hopped on, he's like, oh, do I pronounce it Donnie? And I'm like, what the fuck? So do, do you think he's one of these ivory tower types who's just so like in their head that everything else is really peripheral? Or do you think he's just another uh, intellectual narcissist? Like, where does he chime in on that? Um, I think it, it could be either one of those or it could be an MK thing because I've had multiple people say like, oh yeah, that's what they do. Like that's a, a technique to like throw you off before mm. an interview to make it seem like, oh, I have no idea who you are. Right. And like I said, I, I am suspect of his relationship with Aubrey Marcus and he definitely shows up on shows quite differently with Aubrey and Daniel Schmachtenberger and all the other people who are in on it. Then he's shown up with me, um, and I don't know. I have no idea. Okay, so we're going to transition fairly quickly here to Kyrie and Kanye. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we do that, there's a couple pieces I want to cover. One is Aubrey Marcus. Who is he? Why do people constellate around him? And then I, I have a follow-up question around that. Go ahead. Um, okay, so I'm I'm not the expert. I, I definitely recommend Matthew North's uh, video that he did on Joe Rogan. Is, Math, is Matthew North still alive? No. He's not alive. No, and uh, <laughs> he ceased to be alive shortly after that video came out. And after that video came out, we have never seen Aubrey Marcus and Joe Rogan together. Right, since. right. Um, so... Aubrey, I mean, very similar to Daniel Schmachtenberger. They're these like kind of meaty guys who make their way into culture through biohacking, through nootropics, right? So through supplements that affect the brain. And then they're propped up as these thought leaders, right? But they both have that same thing in common. Um, and he has the Joe Rogan adjacent thing. He has the people on his show um, who are all part of it. Um, he's big in the whole psychedelic realm where you have people who've been in the psychedelic realm much longer with much more chops, but they're not propped up to be the mouthpieces in the same way. Um, Matthew North spoke about, you know, his father's connections to Mossad. I can't speak to that. I know he was in a big accident. So you could see how his nose is messed up in yeah. all these pictures. And mm -hmm. Emily and I did a couple shows on this, like, he was drastically different after that accident. The other thing that's really interesting, and I've, you know, 
done a little diving into his background, there's very little information about Aubrey Marcus. Mm -hmm. Like, that doesn't really share a lot about, like, you know where he grew up, but you really don't know a whole lot about it, right? It's, It's a very interesting scrub in terms of his background. And you'll find the exact same scrub on Daniel Schmachtenberger, who's this parallel thing. So Schmachtenberger had his nootropic. You can't find any information on him. Now he's being propped up as a thought leader by the exact same people. Right. And his company is called On It. Yep. Right. On It. And by the way, On It is one of the products that is, I think, either manufactured and or distributed marketed by Unilever. Oh. And Unilever just came out. The CEO of Unilever came out about six weeks ago and basically said, we don't care if you think we're woke. We don't care if you think that um, our pursuit of diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity is uh, a deal killer for us as a corporation. We stand by this. And he said that um, in the same room as Larry Fink from BlackRock. So on it is part of the Unilever family. That's very significant. That feels extremely significant. So I, Aubrey, um, he and, and Charles just led this festival. It's this, I think it was called Arcadia with a K Mm -hmm. and it's some like psychedelic festival where you have to apply to be a part of it. And you don't know what psychedelics they are going to give you. Um, But I see it as all being part of this, like kind of Jamie wheel ethical cult, like all tied into the same ops that brought psychedelics to America from the get-go through Sandoz and Nazis. Um, I just see it picking up the same thing. And like, what a great way to mind control people when you have access to their psychedelics and are programming them when they're in that very nimble state. Right. So you can also see as we move deeper into the protocols of the World Economic Forum, that almost in a parallel track, Oregon is decriminalizing uh, psilocybin. Mm-hmm. There's been a kind of a groundswell movement for microdosing, right? And you can start to see all these things now begin to emerge. And there's this one woman <coughs> who writes from one of the British rags, and she's always, always, always left-leaning WEF. I mean, you could just set your clock by what she's going to talk about. But then she does a piece on the potential efficacy for mental health in psilocybin, right? There's no, there's no mistake that these two worlds are starting to merge, right? By design. By design. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And so I see Aubrey Marcus is being put as a figurehead for that. And then, my, I'm guessing, like, my guess is that they tapped Einstein, who, I'm again, I'm guessing, was free, was independent, was working for the forces of good. And I feel like when he was slammed um, as an anti-Semite and as a, you know, anti-vaxxer and all of that, it was very easy to absorb him, right, by these people who had his back and were lauding his courage and plying him with God knows what psychedelics. And so my theory, I'm making this up in my head, 
is that now he's being embraced and folded into that and probably doesn't know how nefarious is. Although I do think a lot of people with kids are folding and selling out because they're being told, well, this is happening anyway. So you can either be enslaved or dead or we'll protect you in our like alternate transhumanist reality if you sell out and play our game. Right. You'll get a seat at the table is what I, I like to call it. Um, and staying in that world, you could even see somebody like Joe Rogan, who's who's been set up as the pit bull, right? Joe Rogan is the pit bull. Joe Rogan is like the sun around which they all, you can like, it's so easy. I drew this horrible map diagram. That's like, I, I don't have much earth in my chart. So it's not like a very coherent or cohesive map, but All roads point back to Rogan. Whether he knows it or not, he is absolutely one of the main propaganda arms for this op, and specifically Consilience Project, Santa Fe Institute, and Lifeboat Foundation, which are all this, like, gross transhumanist genocidal trifecta. Right. And ironically, Joe Rogan is a Leo, so he is the son. He is the son. He, 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 I always found this fascinating, that he and Alex Jones are born um, 100, they're, 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 if you can half 365, that's where they are, mm-hmm. right? Alex Jones born on February 11th, Joe Rogan born on August 11th, Aquarius and Leo. Wow. And, and there's that, and you could even, and I talked with, to, with Emily about this astrologically. I remember when the, when the true node was in Leo and the South node was in Aquarius that was the ascent of Rogan and the descent of Alex. Mm-hmm. And you could see this. So they're connected. Yeah. But they're one is rising, the other's descending. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and so, but I also think not that he's just the sun in this kind of heliotropic model of their little universe, but he's also the pit bull because he's an MMA guy, right? He's thick, he's chunky, um, he's stood down the forces of the cancel culture on a number of occasions. So Joe Rogan is the son. He's also the Praetorian guard of this whole thing. Remember when Candace Owen refused to take a stance on climate change because she hadn't done her information and he was on her. Like he was just not okay with her neutrality. Right. I think that was a perfect example of Joe being pit bull. Yeah, he is a pit bull. And, and when he goes after somebody like Jan Wenner, Oh, people love it. Oh, yeah, look at him. He's he's taking him on and he's taking on his uh, subservience to authority and politics. We just got to get better politicians. That's one side of it. But there's another side to Rogan where he also plays the role of the pit bull in the other direction, which is what you're talking about. And well, also the fact that he's an actor and like all these people who defend him and defend his integrity, like. He's famous for pretending. It used to be that our talking heads were journalists or reporters. Now they're all either actors or tech guys. And no one, this is raising an eyebrow for no one. I find that. We we, we had a conversation about Rogan, I think last week. And if you go into his background, it's like he got his first gig was on talk radio where he plays a guy who's a closet conspiracy theorist. And now right. all of a sudden he pretends not to know anything about these conspiracies. Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. Plus the fact that he was training in martial arts as a young kid. And it's like Emily and I, Emily and I had this experience when you're in a gym and there are no adults or parents around, that's when they fuck with you. Right. And so again, I've done a lot of background on Joe Rogan. So I know, you know, as much as I can about his history and yeah, he did the martial arts training. He also went to the same high school and graduated in the same class with Louis CK and I always forget the guy's name. The guy played Joey on friends. They all grew What was that? Matt LeBlanc. Matt, they all graduated from the same high school in the same year. That's in like, what are the odds? What are the odds of something like that? Right. And then you look at his own personal background and for the most part, he was raised by a stepfather, mm-hmm. which a lot of people don't know much about. His birth father was a policeman. He was a cop. Mm-hmm. And so he's got a cop kind of, he's got cop DNA in his background. Right. right. And so his birth father leaves him. His mother remarries and she marries a guy who is, who essentially like, builds buildings right like she she marries she marries way above cop level mm-hmm. way above cop level and joe rogan talks about how when he was young his father would put him out on the cruise when these buildings were being built right so he would kind of have to learn about hard work and labor and you know all that sort of thing mm-hmm. so um I have my theories about who his father might've been, which I don't want to get into right now, but, but it's clear, like even in the story of the human drama, like it's very Shakespearean in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. like his father's a cop and he leaves and he's abandoned. Right. And then who comes into the picture, somebody who builds things, somebody who creates large structures. Right. And, and so there's a lot of interesting mythos um, with Rogan. And then the other part with Rogan is fear factor. And if right. you, if you look at fear factor, they do a lot of MK ultra kind of shit. Fear factor. Right, that's like trauma based mind control. Absolutely. You're, you're being buried with, you know, spiders and worms and you're being put in situations where the car is doing all kinds of crazy shit. And, bringing you to this point of almost like, you know, ego death or something like that. Right. Right. And he, and he's loving it. He's laughing all the way to the bank. I think he did it for six or seven seasons. So yeah. And um, he's also like the channel through which a lot of people who are involved in this op that, that Emily and I have been covering really intensely for the past three years, he gives them their interest. He's the one who gave us Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, uh, Jordan Peterson, Daniel right. Schmachtenberger, like all these people were introduced to the public through Rogan. Through, through Rogan, right? And the you know what is it the 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 dark dark web or whatever they call themselves the intellectual dark web the intellectual dark web. Like they're all in on it. Like it, it's they're all in on it. Yeah, it's so manufactured and 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 so it seems very clear to me. Right. I, I totally agree with you. Um, all right. So let's make a bit of a pivot here and let's, but before we make the pivot, I want, I want to ask you a little bit about 
your relationship with language and words, because that's a big part of your work. And I, and I've, I've told this story before when I was in college, I had a girlfriend who was a feminist Mm -hmm. and she was the sweetest, nicest, kindest feminist you'll ever be. Mm -hmm. Right. But she had principles. And one of the things she talked about was language and the use of words. And there may be people out there who may poo poo me on this, but that's, that's one thing that I got out of my relationship with her was language, words, and context. And I began to pay a lot more attention to how words were either used, misused, weaponized, or deplatformed. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that and your relationship with language. Okay. Um, I've told this story before, so apologies for anyone who's who's hearing me repeat it. But, um, you know, I, I was always a writer. Even as a little kid, I was writing stories. Then when I was writing for the weekly, I was also writing for, you know, Vice, Teen Vogue, LA Yoga. Like I was always writing. And when you're, when you're a journalist, you're on deadlines. So you're writing fast, right? So my days were just words, 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 words. Um, around 2006 to 2008, I went into a deeply shamanic period. I was doing a lot of plant medicine and I, I was dealing with various initiations and at one point, I, I, I was also a third series Ashtanga yogi. So I had a very advanced, um, dedicated six-day-a-week yoga practice. So I went to bed one night, completely healthy. I woke up in the middle of the night um, in agony, folded over on myself with the left side of my body paralyzed. Um, I had five compressed discs in my upper cervical spine, and nothing had actually happened. But um, I spent a month on the couch because I couldn't do anything. And I was just reading. So I would go to my bookshelf, grab a book, read it, grab another one. So I found this book called Hidden Language Codes by R. Neville Johnson. I'd never seen the book before. I don't know how it arrived in my library. And it was about a man who was shot point blank in the chest six times. He died for a few minutes. And while he was dead, he downloaded these languaging codes that allowed him to see how language is programming reality and the frequencies that were encoded. So after I read this book, I could see the languaging codes. And since I was working with words still all day, every day, it just invited me into a more multidimensional relationship with language that I tried to stave off for a really long time. And ultimately it was just like very obvious that language was inviting me to be a kind of custodian to help unpack it in a specific way. So that's where it all began. And if you could sum up the epiphany or revelation that you had about language in a reasonable few sentences or short paragraph, what would it be? Um, I was able to see with my eyes and understand and know how every word was programming the people involved in the exchange and reality at large. So I was able to see how language functions as a reality programming tool. And at first it was really startling because I was still, I was still the Nutter Butter writer. So I would cover, you know, um, like talks by mystics or coaches or, you know, those people. And I would go to these talks and I would see the words come out of their mouth and I would watch them disempower and shut down the audience um, even though they had no idea that's what was happening. Interesting. And so do you think that that use of language was intentional or was just a regurgitation 
of things that they've heard and had that effect? I think it was a combination. I think most of the time it was unconscious. And I think sometimes it was like a marketing trick to get people into a state state of feeling desperate so that they would throw down a ridiculous amount of money to be rescued Mm. by the people doing the talks. So did this ever lead you into NLP? The study of no, NLP. which is so weird because people say that to me all the time and I know it exists and I have had zero authentic inclination to study it, to read about it, to learn about it at all. Yeah, NLP is um, very interesting to say the least, right? It's getting people to do what you want them to do right? Um, through, through language. Right. Um, all right. Thanks for filling us in on that. Let's let's move forward here, and with uh, the uh, the majority of the show, let's talk about what's been going on with Kanye West, and then now we have Kyrie Irving, who over the last twenty four hours um, had to cough up five hundred thousand dollars to the ADL. Um, which the ADL rejected, by the way, because Kanye West tweeted a an image from a movie that's available on Amazon, mm-hmm. and nobody made a big stink about the movie before it was on Amazon. And the and the movie is from Hebrews to Negroes, and it's a documentary that was put together by uh, the black Hebrew Israelites. And th- are you familiar with that group? No, I'm looking it up now. Okay, so the black Hebrew Israelites believe that they are the true Israelites. Okay. That, that they are the true Jews. And they set up camp uh, on the streets of New York, and they basically um, assault anybody in their direction about either their whiteness or they are loudly proclaiming that they're the real Jews. And invariably they will have somebody who is Jewish come up to them and start talking with them and they will berate them and they will, they will, you know, castigate them. And uh, they actually played a pretty significant role uh, with the Covington kids in New York, not New York, but Washington, D.C., um, when what's I always forget his name, but the kid who got outed for being hateful because the Native American guy was banging the drum in his face, right? Right. That was all started by the Black Hebrew Israelites. They they were they were baiting as many of them as possible, and they got this kooky uh, Native American dude who was an ex-Vietnam vet to get into the trance of the language, and w- wound up you know verbally not even verbally but just getting in the face of these kids right they're just, they're just kids right they're just kids right. so that you know that would be one of their weird kind of watershed moments but they're behind the scenes okay so whether you believe in them or not by the way there's do you know who lewis thoreau is do you know that guy mm, he, i know that name so he's this wacky english guy who does these documentaries where he puts himself in really weird situations Mm-hmm. And Louis Thoreau actually did a video where he hung out with the black Hebrew Israelites, like in their meeting space. It's actually a very funny um, documentary. And 
So Kyrie Irving, whether he believes in this or not, right? He just tweeted the image of the movie, which is on Amazon. And everybody who's seen the movie can't make heads or tails of it. It's like, it's just not very good. And the facts in there are fairly convoluted. But if you go through and you look at Kyrie Irving's history, he wound up saying no to the, to the vaccine. He said, no, he said, no, he sat out because the Brooklyn Nets and the city and state of New York would not allow him to play. But other players from say Florida, like Jonathan Isaac, who refused the vaccine, he was able to play. Right. So there's this huge hypocrisy. Finally, Eric Adams makes a deal with the New York Yankees. So the Yankee players and the Yankee fans could attend Yankee stadium. And then eventually Kyrie is able to start to play again, but he held fast with his belief that I'm not putting this in my body. Nobody supported him by the way, except for Jason Whitlock, Jason Whitlock supported him. I bet this was the trade-off. Well, this is where we're going, right? So then prior to that, what does Kyrie Irving come out with about four years ago? He's a flat earther. Right. That's his thing. He, he starts to tweet about flat earth. And then he had a tweet about Alex Jones about, about, about a month ago. Right. So now all these things are starting to kind of line up with, with Kyrie Irving. And if you look at Kyrie Irving's background, it's fairly interesting. First of all, he's born in Australia. Um, so he's not even born on American soil. And the other thing is that he is, uh, part Native American. So he's got, you know, quote, unquote, Indian blood in him. So he's not even like a, you know, a, a dyed in the wool, you know, quote, unquote, black person. He's mixed. He has mixed origin. Mm-hmm. So let me show you. I have some images here of Kyrie Irving. And what's interesting about Kyrie is that he goes through this period where he's flashing a lot of Illuminati signs, right? And there's, but it's only one period. And I'm going to get into that period here. So I'll give you a visual of Kyrie if you haven't seen him. I just looked up the Wikipedia page for this documentary. It looks fake. Like it doesn't, there's no information on the production company. There's no information on who funded it. It just like, looks like something that was just like slapped together and put up. Right. And and Jason Whitlock, um, whom I respect, what he tried to sit through about 60 minutes of it. He said it was trash. Yeah. So it was a trash documentary. So here we have Kyrie. Have you ever done this, Robert? Have you ever just been like hanging out and done this finger thing over your eye? Oh, all the time. Right? All the time. <laughs> Come on. It's underrated. Resting uh, posture. <laughs> so, but, but what's interesting about this and this and this is that you'll notice that they all take place when he's a member of a particular team. That team is the Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron James. Oh. So once Kyrie moves out of LeBron's orbit, you don't see him in any other uniforms doing that. You even get it with the- Does LeBron have something to do with this? So look at this. He's even got that, right? Uh-huh. So does LeBron have something to do with this? He's got a little bit there with the Celtics, it looks like. But the, I do think LeBron has something to do with it. Absolutely. 
hundred percent. Okay. hundred percent. I believe uh, LeBron James is a member of Boule. Um, he's mm-hmm. even got the Boule tattoo on his chest, okay. which I believe is the same tattoo that George Floyd had, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway. Well, what is the origin of Boule? Oh, well, that goes back to that. Uh, that goes back to the origins of the NAACP. Is it a Masonic thing? Is it an Illuminati thing? Well, it's a Masonic thing, but it was started by a group of light-skinned, quote-unquote, Black Americans, although I'm not sure if they're completely American in origin. And one of the founding members of Boulay is W.E.B. Du Bois. Okay. And W.E.B. Du Bois is the figurehead of the NAACP. Mm-hmm. And there was not one quote unquote black American or Negro who founded the NAACP. So you see this um, confluence between the two. Right. And this is where we have the marriage of the one group who will uh, create the infrastructure and another group who will create the membership and it is through the two of them that we will have a culture of grievance Mm -hmm. and this is all documented it's all documented i'm not saying anything that is speculative or conspiratorial Mm -hmm. but those are the roots of boulet and w.e.b du bois is one of the founding members of it and of course du bois would later go on to uh openly state that he is uh a unabashed Marxist and mm-hmm. has always been a Marxist. And when you look at the people who started the NAACP, they all come out of the Marxist ideological framework and background. Mm-hmm. So the NAACP has its roots in Marxism. And it just so happens that out of the three people that are associated with starting the NAACP, um, the, the sort of the figurehead or the central figure also happens to be Jewish. Right. So now we have this very interesting kind of shotgun marriage mm-hmm. of the NAACP, Boule, and the beginning of the culture of grievance, which has been a part of the American story for a very, very, very long time. Right. So this is what we're this is what we're dealing with now. So Kyrie, just to get people um, caught up here. My gut is that Kyrie's penance for not taking the injection was now you got to post this and take this anti-Semitic stance to push this, this agenda of this black Jew war that they're really pushing hard right now. So I think that there could be some truth to that. Um, Kyrie Irving is an Aries. Mm-hmm. and Aries are unapologetic and uh, could he be making a deal uh, maybe but, but I, I've just seen him consistently and like I follow basketball and sports and Kyrie Irving is not a great teammate he's a great player he's not a great teammate why he's um, look there's a lot of Aries out there I hope I don't offend you he's an Aries right Aries want to do their own thing they don't, right. they, they're great pioneers. Um, they can be great system busters. Um, they can be uh, trailblazers, but they don't always make great leaders. 
because too impulsive, impatient. They're too impulsive. They're too impatient, and they don't understand the language of diplomacy. And he and so he they finally made him apologize. Uh, and let me let me throw this. right there. These forced apologies create more antagonism. They're the worst thing for Jews that they're forcing these people to apologize. And so, I think that's by design as well. Well, I'm taking, this is my position. I'm taking an astrological position here. Okay. And the astrological position is that on December 21st in 2020, Jupiter and Saturn moved into the sign of Aquarius, mm -hmm. the super conjunction. And it wasn't just on any day, right? This is the summer solstice. This is the sun's story. Right. And these super conjunctions last for 20 years. So the sun's story over the next 20 years will be the Aquarian story. And in Saturn, it's about limitation. And with Jupiter, it's about um, expansion, contraction, expansion. Mm -hmm. so, so this is our theme for the next 20 years. We are giving birth to something new, mm -hmm. right? And in Aquarius, there is this inversion that takes place, mm -hmm. right? There's an inversion. And what have we, what have we seen really since Obama became president? This goes back to your work with Black Lives Matter. An insane uptick in racism. Right. All under Obama. Didn't have it until he took office, till we had exactly. our first black president. Exactly. So what have they been trying to do? They've been trying to ignite a race war yep. since that point in time. Yep. Now, you and I may not agree on this, and it may get me kicked off of YouTube, right? But I do believe that there are Jewish power brokers who are deeply invested in creating this conflict and this drama. And you can go all the way back to the inception of the NAACP with the creation of Boule and that shotgun marriage between the, those two groups, right? So what are we seeing, right? We're seeing this whole thing, which at some point was going to be, okay, whitey, it's you against you, blacky, right? This is what we're setting up. Now, all of a sudden, the script is changing. Right. The script is changing. And now we're looking at Kyrie Irving and Kanye. And poor Kanye, I, he goes through his own thing, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think Kanye um, has, I think Kanye has done the sacrifices. I, I think Kanye has been through the rituals. I also think Kanye has been handled to the hilt. Oh, Yeah. And he's still being handled to the hill. This is all theater. It is theater. And I think, and this is this is just my two cents here because I'm 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 tracking where all this is going, mm -hmm. is that the um that the intent was to get the common black person and the common white person to be at each other's throats and hate each other. This goes all the way back to Charles Manson, by the way. Mm -hmm. Manson, Manson talked about this. Yep. And now all of a sudden that's changing. Right. Now, now all of a sudden there's a segmenting off. And then everything that's been done since Kanye West has come out 
and made tweets and said things about his own personal experience, which by the way, we're going to get into here. Everything that he said that happened to him is now happening to him again by the very same people he's accused of making those things happen in the first place. Yep. But who's behind those people? Well, that's a good question. And who are those people really? Because again, like we cannot have the JQ question unless we are going to be honest and talk about Kazaria and talk about how many people claim to be Jews who are not Jews. Well, that's a, that's a, we could spend, you and I have done this before. Right. But like I'm we, just we saying like, this. it's a piece of it that I think is super important. I think there are a lot of pieces to this one. Like I think the ADL is probably the most anti-Semitic organization on the planet and all the ways that Jews are used to distract, to conflate, to confuse, and everyone takes the bait. Right. The other thing too, is that, it, you, you know, God bless him. I don't always agree with him. But Royce White made a great point in connection between what's going on with the group of people that are perpetrating the cancellation of Kanye or Kyrie and the relationship to Freemasonry. And nobody ever really talks about this, except for maybe Henry Macau. He'll talk about this, right? And then who's the head of Freemasonry on the planet? It's Prince Charles, right? So this goes into the crown, Right. right. And, the, and the crown has always had like a buddy, buddy relationship with the Rothschilds who are not the, Jews, by and, the way. Right. They're not. And, and it was through the crown in essentially right after world war one, once they disassembled the Ottoman empire and they said, here, you can have mandate Palestine. Here you go. This is, this is, this is now your territory. Right. Go go return to the Holy Land. And all that was set up by Theodore Herzl, by the way. Mm-hmm. And Theodore Herzl has a famous quote. And let me let me bring up his quote. I think I even have it on my computer, so I don't even have to search for it. And and if and if you are Jewish, you need to pay attention to this quote because it is ultimately chilling to the core. I'm gonna bring it up here. Let me get rid of the share. We'll go back to uh, Kyrie. This is Theodore Herzl, who approached the English to get the Americans into World War I so they could win, and as a result, slice and dice the borders, remove the Ottoman Empire, call it Turkey, and then gain possession of Mandate Palestine. If whole branches of Jews must be destroyed, it is worth it as long as a Jewish state in Palestine is created. This is the father of Zionism, mm-hmm. Theodore, Theodore Herzl. Just let that, let that quote sink in. But I think what's, and I think it's important, and I also think it's important that Jewishness and Judaism has been purposely conflated with Zionism. And I they agree. are the same thing. The state of Israel, as far as I'm concerned, is not a Jewish state. It doesn't represent the Jewish people, right? It uses Judaism as a tool to protect, to divide, to divide, to deflect. But that conflation of Zionism with Judaism and Jews is a big part of the problem from my perspective. Well, listen, you and I agree on that. We we agree on that. And even Arthur Kessler talks about this in the 13th tribe. And Arthur Kessler was an avowed Zionist. 
and he was part of the Zionist Congress and he did his research and he said, mm, no, I'm good. I'm tapping out. Right. It's a hard no. I mean, look at the timeline of what's gone on with Kanye. We had Rashida Tlaib give a speech calling out uh, Israel as an apartheid state and being lambasted as an anti-Semite. She never mentioned Judaism. She never mentioned Jew, right? So right there, we have, again, the ADL, the anti-Semitic group that it is, riling up the media to attack her. Then in a very short time, you have this PayPal thing, right? And in the wake of the PayPal thing, maybe even the same day, you have Candace Owens announcing her new payment platform, Glorify, right? right? That same week, Candace Owens shows up with Kanye West at Fashion Week in their right. White Lives Matter shirts. Right. That's not a Candace. I've never seen Candace at Fashion Week or in that realm, right? Then in a very short time, you have Kanye putting up his, you know, death con on Jews and all of a sudden getting kicked off of Chase Manhattan where less than a week before his partner in, in art actions is promoting Glorify. So what a great way to drive traffic to this. I, new I, I agree. And, you know, and I had this conversation with Emily um, about Candace Owens handling Kanye West. Right. And, and I, I don't think that that's out of the question at all. I mean, it's just a little bit too convenient that he gets thrown off of Chase. And by the way, I don't think he should have. Got, I, people are allowed to be anti-Semitic. People are allowed to hate whoever they want, say hateful things like I am all for free speech. Um, but I just think it's interesting how the timing of all of those things. Right. So super convenient. I, I think we're in a we're in a place that is, again, conversation needs to be on the table right what, whatever this is yeah because um when you get into a group like chabad mm -hmm. who, who are theoretically you know very observant jews mm -hmm. right and you drill down into chabad and then you begin to find jared kushner and you begin to find all these strange characters mm -hmm. right I don't, I don't know if you remember but i think it might have been around 20 14 there was a big shooting in india at habad temple i okay. don't know if you remember that um two of the big shootings that happened under trump's watch were at habad temples okay. one was in pittsburgh and the other was in um poway california and habad is this very interesting group and they have very interesting views on the world and the universe. Okay. So that's a whole separate. So within the Jewish world, there are layers of people, belief, faith, this idea of prophet, like the prophetic vision of theoretically, you know, who Jews are supposed to be. Like when you go deeply into Chabad, you get into, you know, the Tikkun Olam, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the world will be in a place of such depravity that there will be a cleansing of the world and mm -hmm. only the most pure and godlike will remain. And it, again, I'm not, I'm not fabricating anything that, you know, each Jew who is alive 
will have 2000 Gentiles serve them. This is part of that prophecy, right? So whether or not that's a PSYOP, whether or not it's another level of this thing, right? It's on the table, right? And we got to talk about it. Of we course. Yeah. But you look at any ancient religious text, including the Bible, including the Quran, they're full of really dumb, divisive shit. Uh, well, you, you and I could, could agree on a lot of that, right? We could definitely agree on a lot of that. The biggest problem is that if you sat down with a Christian and you told them all the things that their religion has wrought and colonialism has wrought, um, and they would say, oh, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right, boy. We're we're guilty of a lot of sins, right? Yeah, let me get on a knee. Uh, would that happen in the Muslim world? Probably less, probably less so. But you can't even have that conversation in the Jewish world. They're going to shut it down. They're just going to shut it down. And okay. it, and again, this is my my piece, right? Yeah. Like if any group, let's use Black Americans. Well, it's like, hey, maybe you've taken advantage of the welfare system. Mm-hmm. And you would find somebody like Thomas Sowell who would agree with that, mm-hmm. right? Oh, and by taking advantage of the welfare system, you have the breakdown of the family, and then you have crime and all these things. And there are plenty of Black Americans who are willing to have that tough conversation, right? I could go into, again, I'm just a guy occupying a white meat suit in this lifetime, mm-hmm. right? But I could get in and say, there are a lot of people that look like me that sold us the fuck out, right? Whether it was through corporations the military-industrial complex, uh, basically giving hand jobs to uh, the Kagans and the Newlands, and saying, "Yeah, let's go, David, betray us." Right? Those motherfuckers are—they're—they're they're betrayers, and I can have that conversation. Easily. But you can't. But but we can't homogenize entire groups. There are some black people with whom you can have that conversation. But they're but they are starting to have that conversation now. I can tell you that. I no, I I see that. I do see that. that. That's okay. happening. That's happening now. I do see that. Right. And then even again, my meat suit and the people that reflect my meat suit, they're starting to finally wake up and, you know, and say, look, all right, we weren't responsible for that. Okay. Right. We, we weren't responsible for that thing. And, and, you know, I've lived my life to the best of my ability to be as fair and equal to all people as possible based upon the precepts of the religion that I inherited, whatever. Right. But now they're starting to go, Hey, look, we've kind of had enough of this, right? We've had enough and let's, 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 let's start, let's stop this part of the conversation mm-hmm. and let, and, and, you know, to the best of my ability or our ability, we've atoned for a sense or whatever. Right. Um, I don't know if that same conversation is happening in the Latino community. I'm not privy to it, but the ones that I'm connected to the black and the white community, they're having those conversations. But even that right there, like the white community, like there is no white community. There might be. I'd agree with you. I'd agree with you with that. Italian community, like this attempt to homogenize, and this is where I get concerned. Is like, you know, Mofax and I have these conversations together all the time. You and I have had this conversation together multiple times. So it's not true that Jews aren't willing to have. The conversation and I you're, know you're you're rare you're you're rare amongst the people that you represent theoretically in your community I mean by and large I mean you could say it's all a psyop with Kanye or you could say it's all a psyop with Kyrie but is there anybody like what was the most reflexive thing Ben Shapiro did 
He called him an anti-Semite 25 times, referred to him as Hitler, and wouldn't even have him on a show. I mean, that's embarrassing for all of us. And it does the whole conversation a disservice. I because I like I listened to the whole three hours of Kanye and Lex. I agreed with 99% of everything that Kanye said. We have to have these conversations. So when we're shutting people down by slapping them with labels, anti-Semite, Hitler, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And this is where, again, there's so many psyops going on around Jews within the Jewish community that I don't think Jews are even aware of. I'd agree with that. The fact that Jews are a protected class, that you're not allowed to deny the Holocaust on certain free speech platforms. I think it's ridiculous and infantilizing. I will protect anyone's right to deny the Holocaust. I don't give a shit if you don't think the Holocaust existed. That's your right, you know? So I think all of that, but Ben Shapiro is part of it. All these famous people are part of it. I think the primary piece that um, I disagreed with Kanye on, and I've been, as I said, I've been talking behind the scenes with Mo Facts about this, is like, I grew up in Los Angeles, right? Remember, um, Jesse Jackson called New York Jaime Town. Right. LA is probably Jaime Town too, right? It's probably where the most Jews live is on these coasts. And I can tell you, as someone who's been in media my entire adult life, I've written scripts, you know, is that these gatekeepers, these agents, these producers, these managers who, yes, they do happen to be Jewish in the same way that in L.A., most of the people who worked on my car were Armenian. Does that mean that there's an Armenian cabal going on or do some groups tend to find themselves in certain industries more so than others? But what I will say is that I was treated just as shitty in that system by the gatekeepers as were countless Jews that I know. That's a shitty system. I don't think they're treating Black people worse than they're treating anyone because it's a lame system when you have these parasites who have no creative talents of their own feeding off of the backs of others. But I think what is left out of that conversation is that there are uh elite groups i don't know if it's kazarian mafia i don't know if it's jewish bankers i don't know if it's just like jewish hollywood types um but they're treating other jews just as terribly like this notion that all jews are in, are in on it is a problem it's like there's a gang problem in la i grew up with bloods bloods and crips being a problem right in certain neighborhoods you don't go into most of those people were black but we never said the problem is the blacks we said the problem is the gang members, right? But right. people don't do Jews the same courtesy. It's not the Kazarian Mafia. It's not the Jewish banking cabal. It's every Jew on the planet. That's a problem. Right. Well, listen, I, I don't disagree with you on that front, right? I don't disagree with you. I think that, the, I wouldn't call it the remedy, but I think that having a conversation like this with you is a start. Because more people who've been raised in a particular tradition need to be able to start having this conversation. Yeah. That's, that's important, right? We, we've got to have it out in the open. Because I know people who believe that it's all the Jews, right? It's all the Jews. Right. And by not speaking up, you're complicit. That is, that is the part that I think is the real hook on this thing. So, well, well if you're not speaking up, then, then you're just part of the conspiracy. And to your point, 
I don't, I don't believe that to be true because, you know, I have people who are been really close to you and, and supported my show and still support my show and they're Jewish, right? Are they part of the conspiracy? No, they're not. That said, again, put it all on the table, right? If we're going to get through this time and we're going to deconstruct what's kept us in these various pens and cages, <coughs> these conversations need to happen. They have to happen and they have to happen without the labels of anti-Semitism, without you fearing getting another strike. Like we have to be able to speak freely. But I will tell you as someone who was born and raised in LA in that industry, I do not know one person who's in on this Jewish conspiracy and who's benefiting from it. I'm not saying there isn't, I don't know definitively. I'm saying I don't know those people. And many of my friends in LA who were all in media None of us are receiving the benefits of this Jewish media that runs the world. I don't know. Well, you clear you clearly are are a rebel, and you, it, I don't I don't think it would matter if if you were Jewish or Irish or whatever. Put the put whatever ish behind it. You you're just going to be an outlier. Right. You personally, right? right? Um, so here's I've been having this thought just over like the last 24 hours and watching how this thing evolves. Mm-hmm. And the thought, because we're in this really weird time where there are echoes of World War II. And I talked about this astrologically when Jupiter um, went to seven degrees of Aries mm-hmm. and it was the exact same degree. It was the Jupiter return of when the Germans invaded Poland. That was on September 3rd. It was the same day that the Pope said that we are in World War III. It was the same day that the Poles demanded reparations from the Germans for this. So we're in this timeline. Mm -hmm. We're in this kind of inception of World War II timeline. And of course, this is where this entire narrative begins to come out right and it started the same way the jews were contagious right well so if you go back to world war one which is another really fucking convoluted story right right and that's when they unhook constantinople right in the ottoman empire and turn into turkey and they set up this whole thing with herzl you know then you have the treaty of versailles and the treaty of versailles absolutely ruins germany Mm-hmm. completely bankrupts them morally it bankrupts them financially and it sets the stages for what will happen later on mm-hmm. and i remember having a, a plane flight with this young guy who was a russian jew and made a shit ton of money um going to stanford and studying computing it was a very interesting conversation i spent hours with this guy and he was he was talking about you know world war ii and how horrible world war ii was and i said well maybe if they'd laid off the Treaty of Versailles a little bit, there, there might've been a bit of a different outcome because a certain person may not be able to rise up mm-hmm. as a result of this. And to the guy's credit, he actually thought about it, right? He didn't just shoot it down. He thought, oh, that's an interesting point, right? But here we are now, we're kind of moving back in this timeline. Mm-hmm. And 
I could see as this thing is fomenting. I was on Twitter last night. Mm-hmm. It, there's there's a thing called Black Twitter. Yes. <laughs> and I was on Black Twitter threads. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, these people are inflamed. This is my concern, is that this is picking up steam. Like this has legs and people are buying into it. That's this, very concerning. So, so remember what I saw, what I, what I just showed you with Theodore Herzl. Yep. And what that quote was. The quote was, I don't care how many Jews have to die as long as it's in service for the creation of Palestine. He said that, right? Did he explain why, like, why the importance of a Palestinian state trumped the lives of the Jews he was willing to sacrifice? Yeah, because, number one, in his mind, it was the reclamation of their destiny, mm-hmm. which would set up the right of return. Mm-hmm. I have a different thought about it. I think that he was actually looking at it as a place where they can run their operations from. Right. That's how I see it. It has nothing to do with Judaism, again. No, it doesn't. The Zionists aren't, Theodore Herzl, even though he, I mean, even Marx, I mean, look at Marx. Marx completely rejected you. He used to make fun of the Jews. Marx Marx is my cousin. Well, he made fun, he made fun of the Jews. Right. Same as Soros, who's held up as this like pillar of why Jews are bad. And it's like he rejected Judaism when he was working for the Nazis as a kid. Right. So Marx comes out of a rabbinical tradition and not only him, but his his family rejected it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this is this is just my theory. And of course, others, I think, would share parts of this theory once they were able to get Palestine, because it was given to them after World War One. Nobody wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. You, if you were uh, a, a a shop owner or a business owner in Berlin and you were making bank and you were living the high life, why the fuck would you want to go out there? Right. Right. So they had to <clears throat> they had to create something mm-hmm. in order to energize this right of return movement, which right. we could probably go into in another show, and I probably get canceled for it, but. Um, if you look at what he said and you look at what's happening now, if I were Jewish, it doesn't matter where you are in that scale, right? You could just be somebody who grew up Jewish and you're living your life, whatever, right? I would be nervous. I, I, would, be, I would be very nervous because I could see where all of a sudden the script is turned and there's a target. There's a new target. And you saw what happened in the summer of 2020, right? So could this be a setup for the targeting of Jewish people yet again by a group that's inflamed? And if that's the case, then why is it happening? What what is the end result? Because we knew what the end result was mm-hmm. with Herzl, which was we're getting Palestine and we're going to set up a base of operations. Right. What, what's the end result of this? Right. What is going to happen? You know, I mean, and I think this is this is a reality that's bubbling up beneath the surface of things. For sure. I've been watching it happen. Like I remember the wave 
back, you know, Jesse Jackson, public enemy, Spike Lee. Like I was, I was very aware of it at that point, but it didn't catch steam. Like it didn't have a lot of legs, but I've been watching this because I, I, I really like MoFAQ show and I, I've, listen pretty regularly so i could see it's for the past year like oh they're really trying to build this black jew conflict in a big way what is it for i mean i think that uh, that kanye is super controlled he he contradicted himself a number of times in that interview with lex friedman lex friedman is definitely controlled he's on the list of cfr's best podcasts yeah he's he's a turtle on the fence post guy all of a sudden he shows up and he's there and he's got thousands and thousands. And he's he's a tech guy. He's an AI guy. Um, yeah. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. Keep going because I, I have thoughts about Kanye and control. Yeah, I just um, I'm not sure what the end game is. Like I'm not sure if it's just another divide and conquer to create more chaos. I don't know if they're trying to deflect what's. I think a lot is to really deflect what's really happening in Ukraine and what that is really about. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to generate more more division there but it might be something much more nefarious it is disturbing and i think you know you mentioned and and i agree because i see it in my family and i've seen it you know with the people i grew up with there is this like knee-jerk defense of like of of anything around jewishness i reject that you know i'm i'm a lot more self-reflective of like well where do i need to take responsibility you know where am i being you know, straight up, I used to wait tables for 12 years and you learn a lot of things about people waiting tables. Black people order sweet frozen beverages and Jews are horrible tippers. And that's, that is just how it is. Um, so I'm always looking at like, well, where can I take responsibility? What's going on? And I don't like to play the Jew card. I don't like to play the Holocaust card, but I think there is something to be said for something that happened so close to our lifetime where we were, I don't know a Jew that didn't grow up learning about close family members that were killed. And so I think because it it happened so close on the timeline, there is more of that knee-jerk defensiveness, which I think it is on Jews to come back to neutrality so that we can have a real deal conversation and move past this as, as a collective. But I think that there are reasons just given how recent the Holocaust happened. Right. And that's, you know, there's, that's a, it's a deep, deep well, which we don't have time to get into. And, and quite frankly, I probably want to have that conversation on my own website, but um there's a video that I played on my show about two months ago. And do you know the channel soft white underbelly? Do you know that channel? No, but it's a great name. You should check it out. Um, essentially what soft white underbelly is, is this guy who interviews people that are on the fringe, very fringy people. Mm-hmm. And one of the interviews he does is with, with this woman named Hashaya, who is the daughter of an Orthodox rabbi. Um, Hold on. An Orthodox rabbi uh, in New Jersey. And she talks about growing up in that environment, right? It's a very, very revelatory video. Mm-hmm. And she's about 37. And she talks about how she did not fit in and everything that happened to her as a result. And when you, really break down 
what she's talking about with the video, um, it sounds for all intents and purposes like it's a cult, right? It's she's she's being indoctrinated into a cult. And she even talks about how there are people inside of that tight knit community that make sure that you don't get out. Right. And there's, there's muscle and enforcers and they have their own lawyers. And what's really interesting about her is she talks about this guy that she meets who she, you know, thinks this is her ticket out. Right. She's like, Oh my God, you know, he's big, he's beautiful. He happens to be Jewish, but you know, he's not like one of us. And she got kicked out of academy after academy. They sent her to Israel. Like she was problematic. Mm-hmm. So she marries this guy. And then all of a sudden he starts to conform and he becomes more of what she grew up with than she even identified with. Hmm. Right. So it's almost like, you know, he's kind of on the fringe, but then all of a sudden he gets sucked into the cult. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's rewarded. I guarantee you the guy's rewarded. He's rewarded with his business, with contracts, and he sees the benefit and affiliation of being a part of that world. And then what does he become? He becomes almost like a mirror image of how her father treated her, mm-hmm. right? It's, fa- it's a fascinating interview. Um, you should watch it. It'll, it'll, it'll blow your mind. And, and, I, and that, I, Go ahead. Well, I'm just curious. Is that different from any other orthodoxy? Well, I was going to say there, there are similarities. But there are also differences. Okay. There are similarities and differences. Like you can find similarities in somebody trying to break free of Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Right. There are similarities to somebody who's trying to break free of dispensationalist um, Southern Baptism, right? Mm-hmm. Or Southern. So, yeah, I mean, there are things in those worlds that are similar, right? You can find, I have a client who's Muslim, and I did a reading for her the other day, and she divorced her husband. And she's, you know, she loves parts of her culture and she's rejecting other parts of her culture mm-hmm. because, you know, they're limiting for her, right? If any orthodoxy is going to clamp down on independent thought and require you to devote yourself to the party line. I mean, trust me, I, I, I'm not a fan of orthodoxies. I'm not a fan of any orthodoxy. Right. The, the, interest, I- the interesting part for me was, of course, her journey her struggle, the things that she went through, right? But the interesting part for me was the non-observant husband mm-hmm. who marries her, and then all of a sudden he gets sucked in and right. starts to do the same thing that her father was in. Well, well, why is that? Well, he was getting benefits and power out of that relationship. He was getting contacts and contracts within that community that made his business better more vibrant he was being rewarded for doing those things and then eventually eventually she had to say no i'm out i'm divorcing you so how is that any different from the people who join skull and bones or a philemic order like anytime someone joins some sort of tribe they reap the benefits i agree with you i agree with you wholeheartedly but Here's the, here's, here's the nub. This is the nub. Mm -hmm. The nub is why didn't he just say, you know what? You know, I love you. You're great. You're amazing. You're sexy. You're beautiful. And we'll experience this on our own and we'll have our own path. Right. We'll have our own path. And what happened is that he sold out. He sold out and was seduced 
by the benefits within that group in that community. Skull and bones is a little bit different. It's a little bit different. You're not born into skull and bones. Like I could tell you that guy probably. What's that? Some people are. If you're well, a guy skull and bones, you're well, 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 so that guy went to Temple when he was young, right? So he was already familiar with mm-hmm. that world, right? It's not like me saying, hey, you know, <laughs> Mazel Tov, right? So it, he has a relationship with that world. Skull and Bones is going to be a non-denominational um, or group that is concentrated with the constellation of power. doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you're left, doesn't matter if you're right. If you're willing to sell your soul, um, you're in. Does, doesn't really matter. Do you I, think the Jews have more power in our world than Skull and Bones? Um, that's, a, that's, that's a really good question. And I would say that, uh, how, would I, how would I define that? Because I'm looking at my bias here and my bias would say no. My bias would say no. But on the other hand, if you look at Skull and Bones, you'll find, you know, members of Skull and Bones who are Jewish, like John Kerry. We talked about that last week. Kerry's like, correct. Yeah, John Kerry is, is Jewish. And so you'll, you'll find a mix uh, inside of Skull and Bones. the other people who are part of, like, name someone in Skull and Bones who's not Jewish. Uh, well, if, if you think that George Bush was not Jewish. Okay. So no one talks about the Bush family or the Clinton crime family in terms of their religion or their ethnicity, but well, with Jews, yeah. it's always yeah. the Jews. Well, that's true. That that's apps at your, uh, by the way, I do think Hillary Clinton is Jewish. If I'm <gasps> not mistaken. My so. apologies. I atone for, for our people. That's a bummer. Right. And again, you know, you get, look, you get the intermixing of these families too. I mean, look at the Goldschmidt family, you know, they will marry outside of their family so that they can assimilate. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, right. We're talking about power and the accrual of power. And we're talking about groups within groups, within groups. Right. right? And sometimes these, and this is what I've said. Sometimes these groups will work together. They'll work together. Just like when you look at the mafia, the mafia work together at times, and then they would turn on each other, right? Look, look at Godfather 2. You have Mo Roth and you have Michael Corleone, right? Mo Roth representing the Jewish mafia, right? right? Michael well, Corleone representing the Italian mafia who had ties with the Jewish mafia because his father and Hyman, Hyman Roth were very tight. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the movie, it's like, who's going to kill each other first, right? So this is what we, on this planet, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at groups that have self-interest and self-investments, right? That's what they have. And does that mean that they're always going to be kosher with one another? No, they will turn on one another if they need to, right? And then it comes down to these allegiances and then you circle the wagons. I mean, so we live in a very, you know, very weird world where there are, I believe um, cliche truths about things. Totally. And there are asterisks and caveats with those cliche truths. And it's up to us to be able, and this is why it's important to have the conversation. And the one thing that Kanye West nailed in this interview with Lex Friedman, and I'm sure you picked up on it, 
was like, okay, you have the Holocaust and we have all these aborted babies that are black in Planned Parenthood, right? So you have your pain. We have our pain. Let's put the pain in the past and let's deal with the now. A hundred percent. And that like, that was one of those moments. And I have more of these moments than not where I love Kanye, but he contradicted that many times. He, he did yeah. because he's That's not clear. He's, right. not he's clear. he's not clear. Which is like what's running through him. Um, and I think where I think the Jew thing is a little different, it's fuzzier because of A, the conflation of Israel with Judaism, which I think is super deliberate, right? Because we know that Israel colluded with Black Lives Matter, but was it Jews who colluded? People will say that. But it are, I don't think Israel represents Jews. Then you have like the Templars who stole all the wisdom and the wealth from King Solomon's temple, which was the Jewish inheritance. They created, is it usury, ursury? Well, no, the, temp, the, the Templars were the first bankers. Right. But that right. gets blamed on the Jews. Right, right. It no, always but, gets blamed yeah. on the Jews. The then histori- you have this whole yeah, yeah. Ashkenazi thing, and that also gets conflated with the Jews. So I think where it gets fuzzy, every group has their has their gifts and their shadows, 100%. But there's so much double crossing and, and masking going on in the Jewish community. I just think it makes it harder to drill down on what is really going on. So... I'm going to bring up a quote from Kyrie, not Kyrie, Kanye West, which is fresh. It's a fresh quote. Um, but before I do that, um, I want I want to kind of round this part of our discussion off. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to this interview with this woman, Hashaya. Mm-hmm. And that I think the default position of the Jewish community will always, for the most part, be in favor of defaulting for the Jewish community. That that's my experience, right? And you know what? You understand if, why? And if I was Jewish, I'd probably do the same thing. I'm just I'm I get it. Like I totally get it. I'm not I'm not I'm not, you know, denigrating that. But and I remember when I was a kid, I was in line to get lunch. It was in high school. And I had my lunch money in my hand, right? And and I was surrounded by a group of black dudes. And I knew these guys, mm-hmm. right? I knew them. And one of the guys snatched the money out of my hand. And there was this one guy who was, you know, in their group, his name is Tim. And Tim was not like these guys, right? You know, these guys, he, Tim would not steal my money. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking with uh, the, uh, you know, the counselor on, on watch. This dude just took my money. And, and then I remember pointing to Tim, like, Hey, you saw it, didn't you? And he, he was mute. Right. I'm like, Oh shit. This is a real, this is a real education in this, in this moment, like in that moment, like that person, even though they knew that that was a a morally, um, you know, kind of corrupt and wrong moment, it didn't matter to him. What mattered to him was sticking together. Right. Right. And, this is this is what happens with community. I mean, you even see this in like the Boston Brahmins and the Blue Bloods from Boston. You know, they stick together until, of course, they bring Katanji Brown Jackson into their mix. But that's a different story. So I understand it. You know, I, I get it. But here's my but. My but 
is that God damn it. We need to break it. We need to break it. We need to, we need to break, we need to break the reflexive circle the wagon moment. Totally. Yeah. A thousand percent. And, and this is the last thing I'm going to say on it is like in the wake of woke culture, right. And all this protecting everyone's hurt feelings for every time someone comments, you know, die kike, your, your, your family should be murdered. You're a plight on this planet. None of those people are getting their comments taken down. None of those people are getting deplatformed. All of that is fair game, which by the way, I think it should be fair game, but it's like, it adds to the reason to those feelings of like, does anyone have my back? Does anyone right. have our back on this planet? And that has an effect. Right. Right. And, and by the way, I'm even like dealing with this kind of over here, my consciousness. It's like for the last, you know, I don't know, since o Obama became president, it, it was like whitey this, whitey that, you know, whitey guy this, whitey guy that. There, I, I'm just being honest. There's there's a little bit of schadenfreude and like, oh, you get to deal with it now, right? Now, now you get to deal with it. And am I taking some kind of delight in that? I'm like, not really, but put it on. Let's see how it feels. And I think that's, I think it's totally natural. And it's also why I think it's by design because I think they were trying to do this blacky whitey thing and now that they're doing it to Jews, I think a lot of the people who are shoved in the white camp will be like, oh, cool. Now you guys deal with it. And I think it's totally natural. You know, like all of this protecting people makes riles people up. It, it, none of it works. Right. So I'm just being transparent, right? Yeah, I get it. Because, you know, I, that, that's a program in the back of my head. And again, I come back to this point where, I'm in a white meat suit in this body, right? And I have some uh, biological buy-in because I have offspring that is in the same meat suit, right? So right. I want to make sure that my kid gets a fair break in this world, no matter what, right? right? And even if he didn't look like me, I would still want to make sure right. that he got a fair break in this world. Let's be honest about that. So, um, all right, let me play. Let me let me show you this quote from Kanye. And then I want to circle back to Ari Emanuel and this, and this will bring us into the conversation with Israel. Okay. okay. So let's do this. Are you having a good time, Danny? I am having a good time. And I'm also happy that the snow's melting. <laughs> we had a big snow this morning and last night. Well, that's kind of, it's kind it's of like, cool. It's not, it's not cool when you have to drive in it though. As long as it's not nucleated snow. Um, okay. So here we go. Kanye shares text allegedly showing his uh his trainer told him to apologize to jewish people or be forcibly institutional he does not i don't think he needs to apologize to anyone personally so it says here these are his squares right it's about how you act um blah 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 i will do anything anything if you could please apologize to my people one thing I will say is that, and Kanye said this several times, he kept calling out the Jewish people, not just the Jewish media. And that's where, and this is what I mentioned to you when we were texting yesterday, there's a sloppiness that is dangerous. You're, so you're going to get that with him because my feeling, and I'm not apologizing for Kanye, but my feeling about Kanye is that he's somebody who is struggling to break free of his programming. Yeah. 
And, and I had a meme on Twitter that kind of went mini viral, which was Kanye leaves Westworld. And it's him and all these, you know, dead bodies in a fake Western city, mm -hmm. right? Kanye is the guy that escaped Westworld. Yeah. And his programming is, you know, all over the place. And, he, the place. <laughs> and, he, and he gets some things right and then he'll contradict himself. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact of what he's been through. And um, notice how he called out Planned Parenthood, and rightly so. But then when, when Lex asked him what he liked about Kim Kardashian, he was bragging about her DNA and her genetic stock. And I'm like, well, that's straight out of eugenics 101. You're absolutely right. That gets all the way back to Yodorovsky in the final card in the three-card spread, which is the fool. Right. And so in, in human design, Kanye is a one, three splenic projector. Oh, that's interesting. And you know a little bit about human design, don't you? I do. He has, he has one defined channel and it's surrender. And it's not transpersonal, which is interesting because that's kind of out of his design that he's always speaking for the people as though he's transpersonally designed, but he isn't. Well, he's the investigator martyr. Right. Mm -hmm. And we can see him playing the martyr role. Big time. Yeah. And it was really funny because during the Lex Friedman interview, he said, I just feel like I get, I get this inspiration from God. It's, it's like a, it's, it's like a feeling and I got to act on it. Right. That is a splenic projector. Mm -hmm. And I would know because I'm a splenic projector. Okay. So I understand exactly what he's talking about. Right. I, would, I wouldn't use the same terminology because I think he conflates a lot of stuff. Yeah. But this this is the this is the um, the the piece of text that is troubling. Second option, I'm going to help you in a, in one of a couple of ways. First, you and I sit down and have a, a loving and open conversation, but you don't use cuss words, and everything that is discussed is based in fact and not some crazy stuff that dumb friend of yours told you where you saw in a tweet. Second option, I have you institutionalized again where they medicate the crap out of you and you go back to zombie land forever. Play date with the kids just won't be the same. Okay. Like how, how, like how do you reconcile this, right? I mean, it's playing into... Every fucking stereotype that you and I have just kind of put on the table and looked at right, from a number of different angles. And that's on the record, right? But again, like, how did that get leaked? How did the press get that? We, no one pays attention to the press here. Like, everyone acts as though this is all happening in a vacuum organically. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's awful. I can't believe anyone would, would speak like that. He put it on his Twitter page. And Kanye was never banned from Twitter. Oh, that. Oh, okay. I misunderstood that. He, no, he, he was suspended for a few so days. Kanye put that on his Twitter page. That's right. It's gross. It's just a super gross. It, it's a gross scenario. And I think it's unfortunate, all this emphasis that's going into this Jewish trainer and this Jewish this, um, it's muddying the situation. No one would ever talk about 
their black trainer, their black doctor, their black agent. But well, it, yeah, I mean, with the Jews. I mean, to be fair, uh, uh, Ben Crump, who's been the lead lawyer for all the BLM cases, um, he he's been he's been raked over the coals a lot as an ambulance chaser, right? I mean, that's what he is. He's an ambulance chaser. Most doctors, lawyers, agents, studio heads, producers are Jews. We, that's that, right. No, but different groups are, and most basketball players are black. Different groups are drawn into different industries. Well, so it's a constellation of power. And this guy's a trainer, right? Whatever a train, whatever form of training he does. And that's really the good question, because would a would a physical trainer talk to their client like that? Or is he a different kind of trainer? Or is he a handler? It sounds like it. Sounds like he's a handler to me. And Kanye has, you know, again, I go right back to the Yodorovsky reading. There's a part of him that's the fool, right? He's got a Sun-Jupiter conjunction in Gemini. But with and- the volume of what's going on right now, and how much media attention it's getting, I don't have to know any of the details to know that it's staged. So do you think, let me just ask you this question, and then we're going to talk about Ari Emanuel and and bring this thing into the doc. Do you think that that trainer, knowing, knowing that Kanye West will put this up on Twitter, do you think that that trainer has two responsibilities? Number one, the responsibility is to himself, right? To not say something that's going to incriminate him. Or number two, does he have some responsibility for the people that Kanye West is talking about? I think it's neither. I think the fact that he said, have you institutionalized again, indicates that he's playing a much different role in Kanye's life. I don't think any of these people give a shit about their people being insulted. That's a ruse. That's no a good one point. cares. I would, agree, I would agree with you. I, I would agree with you. I would agree. So what's his payoff? Who? I mean, so yeah, he has him institutionalized. Does he make more money? Does he get a bonus? Does he get an institutionalization bonus? Is who's he working for and who's pulling the big strings? You know, Kanye's conversation with with Lex about his his like robotics AI stuff, wink, wink, that he kept saying like, Lex, you know, it was like this insider thing. Kanye's obviously in on the transhumanist agenda, given how much he backs Elon. Westworld, Westworld. There's, there's your anchor. It's Westworld. Right, yeah. right. It's his world. So I think there's a much bigger game going on. And again, we're all being distracted by the Jew thing because the Jews make for a really good distraction. But I can't see Kanye West's uh, trainer talking to him like this or having this kind of power pull on him that seems well he certainly he certainly wouldn't be a traditional trainer let's put it that way right um and he and he and he he actually he actually mentioned this guy before where his trainer put him in the hospital he mentioned that in the lex friedman he didn't mention he's not fired so why would he why is he still on payroll that's a great question that is a great uh, that is a great question and it's, not, it's not the story that we, the plebes, are getting. Right. That's a great question. All right. Let's talk a little bit, a little bit about Ari Emanuel, the Emanuel brothers. This takes us to Israel. And Ari Emanuel, who is the number one agent in Hollywood, right? He was, his, he, was his, um, he was in that show, that HBO show, 
Jeremy Piven played him. In oh, Annette. really? That was yeah. a great role. And and I he was Jewish. We know we, that we know we know right. how set up by Jews because back in the day, this as the story goes, Jews weren't allowed in the other industries. You know, growing up in LA after junior high, all my friends went to Campbell Hall. I wasn't allowed into Campbell Hall because they'd already reached their Jew quota. Right. So it's like, it's just not the way everyone paints it. We know Hollywood's a Jewish industry. That we know. So if you look at the Emanuel brothers, all three of them, they are all three highly placed in the three key areas of our society. Okay. One, Ari Emanuel, entertainment and media. Mm-hmm. Two, Rahm Emanuel, politics. Mm-hmm. Three, Zeke Emanuel in medicine. Zeke Emanuel was one of the co-authors of Obamacare. Okay. Gross. And Rahm Emanuel was, was um, one of Obama's right-hand people, eventually becomes the, uh, uh, the mayor of Chicago. Right. So you have these three brothers that are extremely highly placed in these critical kind of industries and platforms. Mm-hmm. Their parents were members of the Ergen gang okay. who, who helped theoretically liberate Israel, right? The Ergen gang, if you look at it on Wikipedia, is classified as a terrorist group. So this brings us back into the Israeli story, right? They right. Are, they're there, they're on the ground, and they're doing everything in their power to blow up the King David Hotel, work for uh, David Ben-Gurion, and make sure that this thing happens in May of 1948, right? Mm-hmm. That's who they come from. And all three of them wind up at some of the highest levels of those industries mm-hmm. that want to be incredibly influential, mm-hmm. medicine, media, and politics. So, this is a coincidence. Well, yeah, I'm not sure if it's that much of a coincidence. No, it doesn't I, seem like it at all. No, it's intentional, right? Right, totally. And, and so I've had this conversation before with other people. And one of the things that I have lauded the Jewish community for is their fucking commitment, right? It, they're, like, you can like look and say, well, they've got all these internecine relationships to support one another and get them into these schools. Like there's a fucking commitment from day one that children will be, will get the best education, right? I mean, you can say whatever you want about the Jewish community. Their, their commitment is almost unparalleled, almost, almost unparalleled. And to that, like I tip my cap, right? Now, is it unparalleled at the expense of other communities? That's a whole nother question and a whole nother story. Right. But I, but I tip my cap to that commitment. Well, look what happened when you were in line and those boys stole your lunch money and then lied about it. This is I, what tribes do. Uh, that's what they, they do. Themselves right. at the de- to the detriment of other communities. Right. Exactly. And over the last, since 2008, which is when Obama was elected. So 14 years, right? So we are now 14 years for the last 14 years. Um, it's been a very interesting story around these so-called tribes, right? Because when you look at the whole Obama BLM story, like, okay, well, we're going to uplift you. You you know, we're going to uplift the Queens and the Kangs. 
and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna give you Joy Reid. Oh, by the way, there's this woman, uh, Tiffany Cross, mm-hmm. who's part of that. Do you know who she is? Tiffany yeah. Cross. She has a week weekend show on MSNBC. She just got canceled, right? Okay. And she's in the Joy Reid camp. Oh. So so now there's this really interesting kind of tectonic shift happening, mm-hmm. right? And whatever you think of Candace Owens and her ex- exposure of BLM and and uh, Patrice Colors, right? Like there's this there's this shift that's happening now, and and we're seeing like everything that had been built up over the last 14 years, um, that's that narrative is starting to change. So we're living in really, really interesting times. And it's my hope that we can have more conversations like the one we just had. Yeah, same. Yeah. What do you got on your plate? Are you working on a book? Um, I'm finishing the final, final, final edit of my new book called The Language of Betterarchy. Um, Robert Forte edited it for me and he recommended, he's like, don't self-publish this one, go for a bigger publisher. Um, and the publishers aren't willing to look at the manuscript because I don't have enough followers. So I'm in this moment of like, do I play that game? Do I self-publish? I don't know, but the book will be done in a couple weeks. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's a good one. I'm really proud of this one. It's a big one. It's a, it's a complete dismantling of hierarchy and this erroneous notion that patriarchy is the root of all evil and that the solution is to put marginalized groups on top. So my perspective is if we need there to be a losing class for there to be a winning class, then we're all losing. It's time to evolve out of status-based organization altogether. So I'm pinpointing hierarchical languaging and seeing, uh, inviting people to flush that out of our lexicon. And that way, when we're speaking true equality and true empowerment, then the world and the systems that emerge from that language will necessarily reflect those values. That sounds great. And that sounds like what I've been talking about for years. When you have a group and you uplift that group at the expense of another group, that those does nothing for anyone. It's not a solution. Everyone it's, hates yeah. that group and you breed more resentment. That's it's, right. And then the elites stay untouched. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so, like to be really simple and graceful because I think a lot of people think overhauling our systems, there's so many moving parts. It's so overwhelming. And it's like, no, no, no. We, we shift the language and all of that will organically reorganize itself. Danny, I'll have you back on when your book gets published and you're, you're welcome here anytime. I love what you do. I love what you stand for. And uh, I think you do great work. Thank you for being here. And where can people find you? Oh, thank you so much for having me. People can find me at dannycats.com at quantumlanguaging.com. You can follow me on Instagram at something.danny. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, Words Are Matter. You can get to all of those through dannycats.com. Be sure to sign up for my newsletter there because of all the shadow banning and censorship. It's just the best way that we can stay connected. All right. Danny, till we meet again, and I see you out there on the uh, interwebs. Take good care. Have a great weekend in melting New Mexico. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye for now. Bye. All right. That was Danny Katz, the great Danny cats. And what do we have behind us? Lots of cats. So, you know, what? I didn't make that connection beforehand. I did not make that connection. Cats and cats. Look at those. Look at those fierce guard. And you know, who's not here. Jasper's not here. 
don't know where he is. All right. I don't know what I'm going to do about Sunday night. Because apparently that channel is not open for business with live streaming. Um, we may meet back here on Sunday night. That's possible. We may meet on Rumble on Sunday night because I can live stream on Rumble. We may meet on my uh, uh, on my website. Follow me, Astro Phoenix Nine, on Twitter. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook. That's Robert Phoenix on Facebook. I'll let you know. I'll let you know where we're going to be because we will stream on Sunday night. And uh, we will get the message out there. All right. Thank you, Mods, for taking care of business uh, at short notice on a different on a different channel. Uh, thank you for Chataria for being here. Thank you again, Danny, for showing up and having a really good, robust, honest conversation. And, uh, you know, stay human. Stay, stay open. Keep your head on the swivel. And don't get drawn in to unnecessary conflicts. Conflict's not a bad thing. Like if you have to go into conflict with somebody, you do it, right? You do it and you do it prepared and you do it with the courage of a samurai if you have to go into conflict. But a samurai doesn't always pull his sword. The samurai only pulls his sword when he's going to disembowel someone. So if you're going to go into conflict, commit to it and go all the way. Walk away from certain things that aren't worth your time or energy. You won't feel bad. Trust me. Choose your battles. Pick them. And if there's one that you're committed to, you're in it to win it. All right. I'm out of here. Use your head in order to serve what's real. Your heart to say what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take care.